We're just over 50 days away from the first race of the 2023 Formula One season in Bahrain. But as always, F1 provides plenty to talk about in the offseason. New principles, new drivers, and maybe an entire new team in the coming future. And of course, new episodes of Unlap. We can't get excited, or Formula One can't get excited about Andretti Cadillac. Is there any opportunity for an additional team to join the grid? Nobody has the patience unfortunately, with the amount of money that's being thrown around. I mean, if there was a team that was going to drop off the, the, the grid to let Andretti in, let's say, I'm not saying it's going to be Williams, but like right now, if you were to guess, you'd say, well, Williams looks like one of the weaker ones there. You look at the FIA and you can ask the questions of what does this governing body do? Do we still need it? What are the things that it brings to the table? Welcome, everyone. It's so good to see you. Nate Saunders, Lawrence Edmondson, of course, and Tony Cohen-Brown is joining the show. Tony, so good to see you. So good to be with you. Thanks for joining us. How are you doing in the 2023 New Year? Doing good in the 2023 New Year. And what a better way to kick it off. Um, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Lawrence, am I, am I still allowed to say Happy New Year? Or is <laughs> you it are. Are we past that? <laughs> I, I, I'm cool with it. I'm cool with it. So some people seem to have an issue with saying Happy New Year after the first two weeks or so. But um, when you work in Formula One, it's funny. You actually sometimes you don't see people in the New Year until testing starts. So uh, it's sure. not uncommon for people to say Happy New Year in February in F1. So I'm, I'm okay with it. What's the cap, Nate? When I have to stop saying it? Well, I'm the sort of guy that will still be saying See you next year, like at the end of December. So I don't <laughs> think I have a cap. I think I'm just that kind of guy that. It, anything goes whenever really so it's probably people it. turning off the podcast as we <laughs> as we speak now hearing that it was a good um, run it was yeah a good two, run. Uh, two weeks two weeks seems fair right or you know yeah. all of january is maybe a bit of a push but yeah two weeks is good we hope everyone is having a great start to 2023 we are back every wednesday throughout the season plus we're gonna have a new studio show throughout the regular season as well more details to come there but a lot of exciting developments here at espn in anticipation of the start of the 2023 season and remember if you're watching on youtube like this video leave us a comment and don't forget to subscribe to espn for more f1 content and if you're listening hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts we're gonna dive in shall we So a lot of news while we were away, Andretti and General Motors announced that they are joining F1. Uh, a lot of buzz. People seem thrilled. Some people, I just don't know exactly who, seem against this. What do we make, Lawrence, of the news that we are going to possibly have 11 teams in F1 in the coming future? Well, I think the key word there is possibly because... As much as Andretti and GM, uh, along with the Cadillac brand, want to be in Formula One, they have to still go through a fairly stringent uh, selection process, which the FIA has said that it will start. And the FIA seemed very, very keen for Andretti to be a big part of that, potentially the big part of that that turns into an 11th Formula One team. But nothing's done yet. And really, like pretty much everything in Formula One, this boils down to money. At the moment, there are 10 teams in Formula One. They run like franchises. They all get a split of the revenues of Formula One. And of course, if you add an 11th team, that split gets a bit smaller. So throughout last year, when Andretti, without GM backing and without Cadillac, were interested in coming into Formula One, the response from the majority of the teams and also kind of from F1 itself was like, well, what are you bringing? What value are you going to add? How are you going to increase the pie so that we all get a bigger slice rather than just taking your own little bit out of it? So 
that seems to be the big um, point that is uh, going to be debated over the coming weeks and months. The teams on the whole, on the record at least, in public, have been fairly quiet about it, but there have been a few source stories out there of, of, of teams suggesting that they're not that happy about it. Again, really, I think, for this uh, reason of what uh, Andretti and Cadillac are going to bring. And I think there's a few questions as well about what kind of involvement is this from Cadillac? Is this just a branding exercise like Alfa Romeo have with Sauber now? Or is it a full-on GM, you know, we're going to throw everything at it, uh, eventually perhaps even build their own power units further down the line. Yeah. At the moment, they've said that they wouldn't do that. They'll probably have Renault power units, which was an existing deal that Andretti already had in place. And so there's a few questions about that. So until we get these details, of which Andretti didn't give many away when they talked to the press, uh, it's really hard to know exactly where this is going to go. But the one thing we can say is that Andretti and Cadillac with GM are fully committed to doing it. And the FIA which is half of the people who will decide on whether um, whether a new team comes in, the other half being Formula One, the commercial rights holders, uh, Formula One management, the FIA half are very, very keen. So from there, we'll just have to see what everyone else says and where we end up. Always a waiting game, I feel like, with everything. Nate, I'm curious, what would be like the percentage? Obviously, a lot of companies, a lot of people want to get involved in the sport as it's just grown exponentially and continues to, and it doesn't look like it's stopping. What is the percentage of a team being able to enter? Do we think that this is 90% success right here with this partnership? Would you put it at 30%? There's going to be a lot of hoops and you don't know if they're able to get it done. Where would you put that finish line? Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? I think this is a heart versus head one as well. Like you would want it to be easy. You'd want it to be like a 90% chance. But Lawrence kind of alluded to it there. You know, F1 teams, I don't know if people know this, this might be us breaking news, but F1 teams are pretty greedy. You know, they 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 yeah. like they like holding on to what they've got currently. And especially with where F1 is right now, you know, the money that is coming in, we haven't seen it like this for a long time. So I would say, I think it's less than 50% if, if you consider all of those things. I think the really key thing actually is going to be, we seem to be heading towards I think something we're going to talk about quite a lot this year, which is FIA versus F1. And the teams are very much kind of on the F1 side of that divide. And as Lawrence mentioned there, the FIA have kind of hinted that this process is starting. F1, we've heard the teams aren't so keen on it. So this will be a real test, I think, of of the president and of the governing body to see how they can kind of corral those teams together, convince them that this is something that is worth doing, that this, this is something that's worth supporting. I mean, personally, I would love it. I think it's a fantastic opportunity. I mean, growing up, Formula One, it always had more than 20 cars on the grid. And I think it's mm-hmm. a it's always a sign of the sport if you're bringing in new teams, you know, you're bringing in new competitors. It's obviously great for young drivers. You know, I mean, there's more sponsorships involved. I think there's a lot of, yeah, there's obviously always bad things that come with a new entry coming in. But I think it would be quite short-sighted to to turn Andretti down. You know, in the, in the short term, I think these teams would lose money. But um, Michael Andretti seems very serious about it. So on that side of it, it seems a lot more likely than what I said before. So when you consider the seriousness of Andretti's proposal, you would say it's over 50%. It seems a lot more likely. Mm-hmm. But the big hurdle is going to be getting those teams on board. So Tony, head and heart, as a fan, clearly, of the sport, as somebody who covers the sport, good thing, bad thing, right time, wrong time? Ooh, 
I definitely think right time. I'm looking at it right now as like a no-lose scenario versus a win-win. It's like a no-lose. Let's give it a shot. I think people also forget that Andretti comes with such a loyal fan base as well. So at a time where F1 is keen to tap into that American audience, Andretti definitely comes, if you're talking about the heart of the sport, with those diehard motorsport fans and Andretti fans. So I think there's something exciting there. I think we often always forget, or I definitely forget, um, that, you know, the FIA doesn't cap the grid to 20 drivers, 10 teams, as Nate was saying. We definitely can have, a, what was it, up to 26, 26 cars, 13 teams. And I was thinking about when was the last time we had 11 teams on the grid? And it was 2016. So it both feels like a long time ago and not that long ago. And then as I was doing my digging, I was like, wait, so actually the mo- the newest addition and most successful addition to the Formula One grid has been Haas. And so that's an interesting one to look at. It's like, do you look at Haas as a success story or not? And I think that sort of sets the, the future of what Andretti has to, has to deal with as it's coming in, because it's no small venture. It's not an easy win-win, that one, of joining a new grid. Or as join being a new team joining an additional an uh, an existing grid that has already so many you know so many existing teams with such legacy um they've got a leg yeah, up the, the Haas example is really interesting because F1 really needed Haas when it when it came yes. in because you know there was teams that were uh you know former partner Marisha was on its way out um and so it was really important that Haas came in but they did it in a completely different way uh they kind of upturned the whole business model in F1 team and they basically bought all the underpinnings from Ferrari and then they did everything they needed to do on top but they mm-hmm. outsourced the manufacturing to Delara and all this kind of stuff so um you know it's it's important but then also Haas as a team uh, only a year ago uh, they were on the verge of collapse uh, and they needed money from the Mazepins essentially to keep them going so I think this is the other side of the argument where um, F1 and the teams want to be a little bit careful is that if you had 10 teams within F1 all spending up to 140 million in the budget cap and making a profit, then yes, clearly there's you know a little bit of uh, leeway for other teams to come in. If you have teams that are still struggling a bit and you know Williams, of course, have backing from Doralton, but long-term future isn't entirely secure, car still seems fairly void of sponsors, you look at that kind of thing, you're like, well, if you add another team in there, then they're going to start taking away and 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 uh, taking sponsors and obviously taking uh, money and resources as well, and obviously engineering talent. So it's th- the question is, uh, can F1 support 11 teams at the moment? And I think they do have to be careful with that. On the other hand, a brand like Cadillac, you know, it's almost like this is exactly what F1 needed. Like F1's been chasing the US market, chasing the US market. And then one of the biggest, I mean, Katie, you'll be able to speak to this, what Cadillac means in in the US. But when I think of it, it's like the ultimate luxury uh, car. I still think of like the 70s and 80s Cadillacs, which are just really cool looking things. Boats. um, Yeah, yeah, boats, which is actually not that F1, (laughs) but still huge and a big brand in the imagination in in uh in the us so yeah it's um it's a tough one it's it's balancing that is, is really tough but i think you do have to make sure that you don't end up in a situation where you let uh andretti and um and uh cadillac in and then you maybe lose williams and house along the way or something like sure. that um then the other factor is and this is another reason why f1 didn't come out entirely supportive of it is that they said well the andretti cadillac proposal is the most public, most visible one, but there's other uh, people interested as well. And so they need to analyze all of them. And if one of those is, say, Honda, for example, which we know have signed up to the 2026 engine 
rules, even though only a couple of years ago they said they were leaving the sport. Uh, you know, if a big brand like Honda comes in and wants to do its own factory team, well, you know, that's that's a pretty serious proposal to go up against uh, Cadillac and Andretti, especially if Cadillac aren't willing to really get involved in the nuts and bolts and, you know, oil of the engine. Uh, so it's it's a, it's a real interesting one to balance. There's so many things going on, but um, what I'd hate to see is that just as F1 gets to a point where it looks like it has 10 stable teams, it rocks the boat and uh, creates a situation like we had the last time we had a big influx of teams, which was 2010 when we had um, Hispania. Uh, they were called Team Lotus at the, t- the time. They later became Caterham. Uh, Mana, essentially, uh, that was Virgin at the time, became Marussia. And then there was also uh, USF1 that was meant to come in. A fourth team didn't even make it to the grid. So you have to look back and learn the lessons of that as well. You know, that, that was a very different situation. Those teams have been told there was a budget cap, then there wasn't. But you know, it's still creating an environment in which these teams can thrive and exist and hopefully succeed and be competitive because you don't want a situation like we had then where you have, uh, we had, what, 24 cars on the grid, but six of them were basically in a different category, you know, so far off the back. So these are all the things F1's balancing up. And obviously they want to capitalize on the popularity and the growth within the United States as we get prepared for three races in the States this upcoming season. Tony, to your point, Andretti comes with a large following. Nate, I'm just curious with that, how does an Andretti team move the needle in America? I mean, you've been to Coda, you've seen 450 plus fans, thousand fans come through throughout a weekend. Does it move the needle that much that it's advantageous or do you worry about the delusion? I think <clears throat> I think the Andretti name is big, um, and it's bigger than I realized when I went to the Indy, Indy 500 in 2017. I really realized that. I think um, there's a f- there's probably only a few names in America that people actually think of. This is a racing driver. You've got Earnhardt. I think a lot of people know Andretti, probably from Mario. You know, a lot of older fans might know the name Mario. Obviously, Michael's run the team for a long, long time. So I think it it definitely feels more American to a casual fan. I would say than the Haas team does. You know, Haas has made no kind of qualms about the fact that they're, that Gene Haas is there to sell his machine tool product, which is, you know, what's what's all over the car. He doesn't have the American flag there. So I think that that American side of it, I think would, would really help. Uh, I think, and, you know, we know that Michael Andretti, when he was trying to get into F1 before, his part of his plan was to have Colton Herter there as well. Mm-hmm. So I think having that American driver, I know we've got Logan Sargent coming in, but American driver, American team, I think that would move the needle in quite a way. And I think, as Tony mentioned, you know, Andretti has this pedigree that a lot of fans, it's not like they have to learn what the team's about. They don't have to learn what Andretti's about. They don't really have to learn what Cadillac's about. You know, if you drive around in America, you see Cadillacs, you know, all the time. And usually, you know, that's when you have to keep your eye on the road because you might, you know, you're kind of looking to one side like, oh, there's a Cadillac here. Um, So, yeah, I think all of those things together mean it should, in theory, on paper, be quite an easy sell for the for the US market. So I think that um that is you would think is a big positive for for the team. Um but I don't know. I mean I was trying to think before we did this show, I was trying to think, are there any obvious glaring disadvantages of having the Andretti name in there? And I can't really think of any. I mean Lawrence mentioned um about the other teams, which is a really good point. Um but in terms of the Andretti entry itself, it seems pretty solid. So, you know, coming in from that perspective, you'd be confident that they could at least stay around for the long term um but obviously the budget cap there is is kind of doing its job if andressi come in the budget cap helps teams come in helps them they know they're not going to be competing against a team spending 
600 million next year, everybody's going to be spending the same amount of money, uh, well, or at least capped at the same amount of money. So that will help them as well. Um, so yeah, I think I think we're in a good place with them. I read a piece that was interesting around the, based on something that you just said there, Nate prompted me of just, there's a really interesting piece about the, an interview with the Kota race promoter who was specifically asking the question, whose job it is to get the fans and the audience excited and get them to Kota. And he was essentially saying, my job is to build a venue so that when the fans are here, they have the best experience and the best time possible and to keep growing that venue. But then it was a clear sort of read between the lines. It's Formula One's job to build up that audience and ensure that audience still comes. And so where my head goes to when I was reading um, Mohammed bin Salim's tweets, I was looking at this going, who is he talking when he's talking about this adverse reaction? And my mind went to, is it because he's feeling that there's a lukewarm reaction from Formula One to the Andretti news. And he's kind of like prodding it a little bit, going, we should be more excited about it. Because then my mind goes to, if we can't get excited or if Formula One can't get excited about Andretti Cadillac, is there any opportunity for an additional team to join the grid? Because if it's not them and we can't get excited about that, then I think we're stuck with 10 teams. Anyway, that was my sort of where my mind was going. But something you said, Nate, prompted me to that interview with the Cota promoter, just like whose job it is to build the F1 audience. It is Formula One's. And if it is Formula One's job, then you have to bring in more teams. And so when I was reading Mohammed Bin Salim's tweets, I was like, you are definitely the way I'm reading between the lines is F1's not excited enough for you. And he's trying to get F1 more excited by this opportunity. I read it the same way. So I think we're we're reading it between the lines in the same way. I mean, it definitely felt like, I don't think the FIA is spending all their time kind of trawling through tweets and being like, this person said it's going to be rubbish. I think that that's quite a pointed um, thing for him to have said. So yeah, it's, it's, and, and, and so Bobby Epstein is head of, head of coach and he said that quite a lot in the past. Um, and yeah, Thank he's, you. I think he's, Epstein, I think he's, yes. Um, I only know because I've interviewed him so many times. So his name's etched into my head. Um, phenomenal he, guy. It's a phenomenal interview. Yeah. He's a great interview. He's, 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 um, he's a character. Uh, but yeah, he's right as well. You know, he's, he, he feels like he's done. He's like, well, look, I've done this. I've done this. Um, I've built the circuit, you know, we've made it a great race, but I can't do too much more than this. So yeah, I think, I think I can understand what he means. If the stars were to align based on all the hoops that Lawrence and all three of you have laid out, it wouldn't happen until at least 2026, correct? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, the reason for that is that that's when there's a regulation change. So um, there's a new engine formula coming in, which probably wouldn't impact Andretti Cadillac necessarily, but you're building a whole new car around it as well, new regs. And uh, to come in any earlier just wouldn't make any sense because you'd be building to a different set of regs to then rip it all up and start again. So anybody um, looking to do it properly, just with the lead times as well, you know, they've uh, started building this new factory for uh, a number of Andretti motorsport projects, but with the idea of running F1 out of it as well. Um, and so, yeah, to get all of that up and running is a huge task. And, you know, it's it's so rare that this happens. Like, yeah, as, as Tony said, Haas was the last example of a, of a team coming onto grid, but it, it was done in a different way. So to go back and look at the last time a real big proper team was set up and stuck and stayed there, you're going a long way back because um you know i'm thinking back to like toyota well they eventually uh fell apart the three teams i mentioned earlier hispania caterham and uh, marusha they all uh fell apart in the end as well so yeah you're going back to like i don't know maybe even the early bar is it i don't know like because otherwise often these teams change hands you know so this way audi is coming into formula one is that they're buying the the sauber team and uh, they're coming in that way and uh obviously that's a way that a lot of the existing teams would like 
changes of names and uh, new brands to come in because it ups the value of, of, of what they have as well. And uh, Toto Wolf, who was uh, quite outspoken about Andretti originally when uh, they were looking to come in without Cadillac, but hasn't really spoken on it again since, even though his quotes have continued to be circulated. Um, one thing he pointed out a, a while back was that if you're going to set up a brand new team and you're going to pay your 200 million um, entry fee as well, then really you need a billion dollars in the bank to make it happen. And that's just to get things up and running. And then you start running your team at 140 million a year. It's, you know, it's big, big money. And 140 million a year, of course, is, you know, that's just the basic, but that's just getting the the, the cars on the track. You've then got marketing expenses and stuff on that. And of course, you're trying to bring money back with, um, you know, sponsorship and um, perhaps pay drivers in Andretti's case, I guess, Cadillac, uh, bringing a lot of the funding. But um, it's an expensive game. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a really big outlay for any team to come in, which is why, if anyone does manage it, you know, it it needs, and this is what the FIA and F1 will go through, they need to make sure that everything is there, you know, all of the funding is there. And really, I think for a period that's going to keep them on the grid for, I mean, you at least want, you'd at least want five years, wouldn't you? Maybe more really to, to, to make sure that you don't just have a team that comes and goes and because that looks bad for F1 as well. Car reveals are yes. coming up. And Come on, season. Let's go. Nate is excited by that reaction. If you're listening, he gave a big fist pump in his little icon. So I know this is a audio and visual medium, depending on where you're watching or listening. Alphatari takes the cake. They begin uh, February 11th. Aston Martin and McLaren are going to do their reveals on February 13th. Ferrari, Valentine's Day with the Ferrari Red on February 14th. Alpine, February 16th. We're awaiting confirmation from Red Bull and others. Nate, because of your reaction, how important are the reveals? Well, it depends what you mean by important. I mean, um, in terms of what the season is going to look like, they're not very important at all because often the cars we get are kind of, it's actually more of a livery reveal, you know, the, mm-hmm. the paint job that's on the cars. Um, but it's a great way of getting the excitement for the new season. You know, it'd be like if every team before a sporting event, they had a day where, they're like, here's our kit, and you know, it happened in quick succession. You'd 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 suddenly get very excited about it. I think one of the coolest things about it is as well that there's genuine excitement for a, a few days, especially before the likes of Ferrari, Mercedes, etc., to see what their car looks like. Even though you might be listening and thinking, well, Ferrari's surely going to be red. It was a different shade of red this year, and it looks so much. But sorry, last season. So I'm still in that 2022 mindset. Um, but it was, you know, it looked different, and I think that last year it was the first time. Um, we'd seen what the new cars might look like. You know, that we saw videos of them, renders of them. It was that first time you really got to see what what the bigger cars looked like. So from that point of view, it's just after two months without racing, it's a great way to kind of kickstart that that fire. Um, and there's a there's a lot of great headlines that could be written about Ferrari. You know, is it is it going to be a good Valentine's Day or Valentine's Day massacre? You know, all those kind of things. You just you just don't know. So um, it's a brave time to launch. But um, obviously that. That one seems to be the one that, yeah, that one always seems to be the one that people are most excited to see because, you know, you want to see, is this the car that Ferrari can kind of end that championship drought with? They We felt like it might have been last year. This year, I think they're still going to be close, even if last year didn't go as well as they wanted to. Um, and yeah, it's just it's just exciting. And there's, you know, also the other benefit is, or the, the exciting thing from a journalistic point of view, you get to see, you know, Fernando Alonso in Aston Martin gear. You get to see mm-hmm. all those guys, you know, dressed in new kit. It, you know, it, look, it looks, it, it just feels fresh. It feels like you're going again for a new season. So always, always a good time of year. 
Ferrari, Nate commends you for your courage in the date that you have selected. Yeah. Tony, <laughs> Tony, who are you most excited to see do their reveal? Ooh, I've got a couple of ones. I'm definitely excited mostly about Alpine. Um, I don't know. I've got, I, I'm I'm excited. I think it's maybe my French roots, but I'm excited about the all French lineup on a French team. And I'm excited by the colors. Um, Alfa Romeo as well, because they seem like the cool kids and they're always understated, but they always come up with something pretty cool. And then I have to say, I've kind of fallen in love with the Aston Martin uh, green over the years. And I'm excited to see how they play with that. I also just always look at these the team, the car reveals is a bit like a Trojan horse of keeping us all ooing and eyeing and then behind. I always feel like there's something bubbling on the surface that we should be focusing on, but all our eyes are peeled on all the car liveries um, that create fun hype. But to Nate's point, it's always exciting. Um, but I think those are my three. I, I think it's Aston Martin, Alfa Romeo and Alpine like that are just like top of mind for me. How have the reveals changed over the last couple of years, last decades, Lawrence? I mean, they seem, as to Nate's point, a big to-do. Were they always that way? They used to be even more of a to-do back in the day. So um, it's a bit before my time covering sport. But 97, when McLaren launched with uh, a new livery, they had a West livery, and it was actually one of the seasons where they really got it together. They had the Spice Girls there. They had Jamiroquai there. It was all on stage at uh, Alexandra Palace in London and dry ice everywhere and somewhere in the back of the stage there was a formula one car that no one was really paying attention to <laughs> so I, I think it it has changed quite a lot um in in my time uh you know there's been some yeah a bit big variety uh mclaren always used to go quite big i remember they ran two cars um which is remarkable really considering i think they were uh, that year's car, Free Valencia on the streets the year that fernando alonso joined them uh then another year i think it was 2010 they had a nice idea where they had the very basic chassis of the car and then they got fans to come and bring parts uh, from a crowd. And this was in the middle of Berlin in a, in a shopping centre. And they got fans to come and bring parts and the mechanics would bolt it all together uh, in front of them. Of course, it wasn't the real car, you know, but still it it, it had like some of the similar shapes. And uh, They had quite an unreliable car that year. That might have been why. <laughs> That's why, yeah, yeah. Uh, so somebody just went off with the most important part and it never came back. Um yeah, so it's changed a lot. I mean, for me, like the, I always get excited um, if I get an invite through from Ferrari. It doesn't happen every year. Sometimes I do it behind closed doors, but a number of times in recent years, they've uh, they've had the media along. And there's something very cool about going to Maranello uh, in the winter. There's still a bit of snow on the ground and you get taken into uh, their factory and, um, you know, usually the media are kept away slightly, but, uh, and then, you know, you see the, the car come and be launched and there is just something very special about seeing a brand new Ferrari because the hopes are always so high <laughs> at that time of the year. And then they so often seem to drop, but um, yeah, it's uh, it, it has changed a bit, but I feel like it all depends on sponsorship money. So the real kind of glory days of, of car launches was when there was a lot of tobacco money in the sport and there was serious money in the sport. And of course, if, you know, if you're a tobacco company and you've paid to put your name across the side of a car, then you're going to want to do everything to promote the fact you've done that. And so they would have these ridiculous launches uh, all around Europe, different parts of the world. But um, Alpha Tauri, I believe this year is in New York um, as part of Fashion Week, which is quite a cool tie-in. Of course, Alpha Tauri is Red Bull's fashion brand. So um, I'm quite excited to see what they come up with because uh, they usually do something something kind of fun. 
Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. It's been a while uh, since we've been able to digest and discuss uh, what was principal silly season. Uh, as we all know, Mattia Bonotto turned in his resignation at Ferrari. Fred Vasseur is the new team boss moving forward for Ferrari. Um, it's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Not to rehash the season that was, but Ferrari obviously was the gift that kept on giving in terms of talking points throughout 2022. Is this the right decision? Is Fred Vasseur the right man for the job moving forward, Lawrence? Yeah, I'm I'm not convinced it's it's the best decision overall. And that's nothing against Fred. I think Fred probably is one of the better replacements they had available to them. I think they were also uh, interested in Andreas Seidel as well, who ended up at uh Alfa Romeo, which will become Audi, and he was obviously keener to to go with the uh the major big German brand Audi than than Ferrari. Because I think the problem with Ferrari is that it's just become such a difficult job to take on. And uh you know, Bonotto did a number of things during his time there, which which were questionable. You know, I mean, the whole engine saga in 2019 when they got caught doing stuff which clearly they shouldn't have been doing. Um, but then the one thing, you know, I felt that he got right and kind of the culmination of everything that he'd done on the technical side was to create the freedom and the ability within Marinello uh, to really focus on the... 2022 set of regulations and come up with a car that out the box was winning races and Ferrari hadn't done that for um, a couple of years. So I think, you know, while Ferrari are never happy unless they're winning championships, mm-hmm. um, it looked like the right things were, were starting to be put in place. Now, of course, there was still the awful strategy. There was still the bad reliability. And um, I guess those ultimately do filter up, up to the top, but um yeah, I, I don't know. I may, maybe it's just the the only thing that I've kind of come to think of after thinking about this over over the winter is that maybe Bonotto just wasn't willing to make some of the decisions that had to be made in those areas because he would often say that um, that there won't be changes. You know, that the people, the right people, are in the right job. So maybe the top brass at Ferrari looked at it and decided that actually we need a a clean cut. We need somebody who's going to come in and make the changes we need. But I think a lot of it is also that. Um, Benedetto Vigna, who's the new CEO there, uh, you know, he took over um, from Louis Camilleri, who took over from Sergio Marchioni and Benotto really, his time and his kind of coming to 
power within the Ferrari F1 team structures at the very top was really under Marchioni and then supported by Camilleri and then Vignes come in. So I feel like there's also been such a big change at the top that that has also created changes further down. Um, the weird thing about this season is that as ever with Ferrari, nothing but a championship will do. And if they win the championship, um, you you know, Fred will obviously have done a good job, but a lot of the things would have been put in place by Mattia Renato before him. So, um, yeah, it's it's a tricky one. And then if they don't win, uh, I guess they can just blame Mattia Renato, but then Fred <laughs> really has to get it right the following year. And so it's it's a lot of pressure and it, it's it's all a bit bit mixed up. I'm I'm still not convinced it was the best decision to to win championships quickly, but um, yeah, I, I'm sure I'll be proved wrong as I usually am with these kind of things in Formula <laughs> One, which is why I'm not the CEO of Ferrari. Well, I, I do think that there is something to be said for continuity in this sport. So, Tony, with that said, do you feel like this move will disrupt that? And and could you see Ferrari actually taking steps back after we saw? what we thought was drastic progress. And then obviously it kind of mm. fall apart before our eyes. It's interesting because I have a question for you also, Lawrence, after this, but listening to you, Lawrence, my mind just kept going to like, leadership change is so freaking hard. It's just so incredibly difficult and it trickles down. And to get a whole team working with a whole new leadership and to getting the drivers accustomed to it. Now, we know that Charles Leclerc has worked with Vassar previously, but I, we always talk about just swapping in a team principal, swapping out a team principal, same with drivers, as if this is an easy thing. And it just is incredibly hard. Um, so there's something there that I definitely think it's one step forward, three steps back um, in that perspective, because, again, leadership change is hard and there's a lot to get accustomed to and there's a lot to get off the ground. And I do worry for the teams who don't have that continuity. And when you look on the grid, the teams that are pretty good at pivoting and changing and getting a, a grip with things are teams that have had a solid duo of teammates, a driver that's been consistent, a driver teamed with a team principal, we have that continuity and it works. But the question I had for you, Lawrence, is you know how we always say like drivers and obviously Sebastian Vettel was well known as saying that if Ferrari comes calling, you just run as a driver, like you pick up and you move. Is that the same? Is A, is that still a thing? But is that also a thing with team principals? Because I had a little bit of feeling with Ferrari that when Ferrari was like, we need a new team principal, that there wasn't like a rush or an exodus of people putting up their hands and go, we want that job. And so I was wondering if that is indicative of the times for Ferrari, or if that is indicative of just Ferrari as a whole, that they maybe no longer have the pull that they used to have. And I'm not the biggest Ferrari fan, so I come with that bias. But I'm curious, <laughs> Lawrence, as, as a big Ferrari fan, if that if you're seeing that change or, you know, when yeah. Ferrari comes calling you pick uh, up no, I, I think you're right and i think it's, it is almost inverse that when uh for a driver they almost can't say no but for a team principal uh it could be your last job in formula one you know there's that kind of feeling and it's also um it's such a different beast as a team to any other on the grid and i think part of that is just uh a cultural thing being in italy as opposed to all the british teams you know a lot of engineers who work in formula one uh don't want to move out of the UK essentially and you know that's why there's such a draw there whereas going to um Italy it's such an upheaval and there's been success stories Ross Braun James Allison but then obviously James Allison didn't work out in the end and he he in the end he decided he wanted to move back so it's um it's it's a really big big decision but it's, it's the pressure it's just a huge amount of pressure and if you're going into that situation and you don't feel like you have the control to make it work then you know why would you do it and I think this was the really important thing about the last success period of Ferrari, 
when Jean Todd was there and the team was absolutely nowhere in much worse situation back then than it has been in, in, in recent years. And Luca de Montezemolo was, was running it. Um, Enzo Ferrari had uh, died in the late eighties. And so um, Montezemolo looked and he basically, you know, wanted to get Todd who had been very successful in, uh, in rallying especially and wanted to bring him in and give, give him a position. But the one thing he also gave him was the freedom and the time. Those are the two big things. The freedom to build up the team he wanted. So bringing in Ross Braun, Rory Byrne, uh, kind of creating this uh, wonder team, Michael Schumacher, of course. Um, and then also the time, because uh, I think I'm right in saying Todd joined in 92. Um, and, you know, they didn't win a championship until uh, 2000 um, in, in the Drivers' Championship. So it's it took a long, long time. And um, I think that's the reality of it. And uh, one thing that a lot of people were saying when uh, Benotto news broke was, well, look at the rival teams, look at Red Bull and how long Christian Horn has been there since 2005. Success didn't come immediately. It took five years to get there in 2010. And then it dropped away. And yet it's come back. So, you know, there's um, there's understanding all the factors involved. And I think that's why in this case, uh, there is an element that the change is right at the top which kind of came about through things out of everyone's control. You know, Mark Ianni very sadly died. Uh, Camilleri became ill and then decided that he wanted to step down. And so those changes um, have, have brought about a bit of a culture shift at the very top of Ferrari uh, and the whole direction of Ferrari as a brand. And I think that they want to, they feel like they need to change the F1 team as well. But my hope is that Fred is going in there, Fred Vasseur is going in there with the two things, the time and the flexibility. Um, the other concern that you know he, that he faces is that he's not a technical guy. Mattia Bonotto certainly was. And a lot of the success that Ferrari have had in recent years has been down to the uh, culture that Bonotto has been able to create in the design office and this kind of idea to go and experiment with things, not have the blame laid at your door when uh, you know a car doesn't deliver on the track as it did in the wind tunnel and all this kind of stuff. And it, it created some, some brilliant ideas. If you look at this, sorry, last year's Ferrari, 2022 Ferrari, it was noticeably a very different car to a lot of the other things on the grid. So um, Benotto was at the top of that technical structure and now he's gone. So there's lots of very good people in Ferrari. I'm, sh I'm sure they'll be able to fill in, but it, it's more just the ethos that I think Benotto created uh, was a positive thing in the design office, but maybe the benefits that were there didn't come across to the race team, which is why the strategies went wrong and the rest of it. So, um, yeah, again, glad I'm not the Ferrari CEO, but that's the way I see it. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right to say that a lot of people will look at that top job at Ferrari, the team principal job, and have second thoughts about it. But the gift of time is interesting. As we started the conversation talking about Andretti and Cadillac, it's the same thing. Like it's a 10 year project in the making. It has to be. Yeah. I, no I, I think afforded that time. Unfortunately, it, Unless you yes. have somebody at the top who understands that. I mean, I know we're talking F1 here, but you see that, Nate, if you actually do get to go to a divisional game, you see that in the NFL, you see that in American sports. Nobody has the patience, unfortunately, mm -hmm. with the amount of money that's being thrown around. Um, but it's often those who are patient that finally find success. I've also um, wondered this with investment funds and VCs putting money because they want uh -huh. a return on their investment fast. And, you know, as we see more and more Formula One teams with 
backing from investment funds and, you know, and venture capital backed. I, that's where my mind was going when I was asking you that as well, Lawrence. I'm just like, are we going to get, are the, you know, are the investors going to get, get more and more anxious to get a return on their investment fast? And Formula One is a sport that moves so incredibly slowly off track. Um, but, and, and Red Bull here, are a really good example. You know, they had, what was it? Seven, eight years where they didn't win a championship um, having been dominant for four seasons. And I think a lot of teams would have, you know, or, or organizations would have said, right, it's it's Horner's fault. Let's get rid of him. He was clearly not delivering. But Horner is part of a wider culture there. You know, obviously Helmut Marco kind of runs things in a certain way. Obviously, it was very sad last year with Dietrich Mateschitz passing away. But you know what Red Bull's culture is. You know how they operate. And in that time, you always knew that Red Bull believed as soon as the regulations kind of give us this leeway to to be successful, we're going to be right back up there. They never doubted that. You know, they managed to get Max in while they did. They could have easily imploded while Mercedes were winning championships, but they kept it all together. And I think that it meant that when everything came together the way it did for them, you know, they still had Horner there. They still had the team pretty much as strong as it could have been. So it's a really good lesson. And obviously Mercedes, you know, they've run, they obviously had Lauda and Wolf um, running that team for a long time. So two very, very good examples. And those, those two teams are kind of the standard bearers right now. So um, it kind of, it just, supports what Lawrence and um, Tony have been saying. Basura, obviously, now at Ferrari, which means Alfa Romeo has brought in Andreas Seidel from McLaren. Nate, I know you've got great ties at McLaren. Surprising move for Seidel to up and leave McLaren and Zach Brown, and, and do you think it's a good career move for him given Audi's implications down the road? I think it was surprising uh, given the timing. I don't think the move was so surprising. I think that um, it was kind of clear this year. Oh, sorry, we, we all keep doing it. It was clear in 2022, the year that we've just had, um, that Seidel was kind of starting to look elsewhere and wonder where his step up the ladder was going to be. And I think that, you know, at McLaren, that was never going to be the case. Obviously, at Alfa Romeo, there's a much bigger project there. And as you mentioned, you know, there's things on the horizon there that are pretty exciting. Um, and I think the great thing for him is he can kind of put a lot of the day-to-day of F1 behind him. You know, they, they're going to hire a team principal, to operate the actual F1 team at Alpha. So Seidel kind of has this much bigger role there. Um, so you can imagine from a contract perspective, I'm sure he's on a lot, you know, he's on a much better contract. He's got much better responsibilities. So that side of it didn't surprise me so much. I think what did surprise me was that um, McLaren let him go, you know, straight away, you know, because he's massively valued at McLaren. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, if you look at the McLaren resurgence of the last few years, Seidel's played a huge part in that. So, by the sounds of it, from what Zach Brown said when this all news came about, and Andreas Stella is the management promoted um, to team boss there, he said that you know we let we let Seidel go. It got a bit confusing in the in the press conference because he kept talking about Andrea and Andreas. So when you came to transcribe the the quotes that had come back, you were like, right, I've got to make sure I'm getting the right ones here. Um, but you know he let he let um, Seidel go without any gardening leave, you know, without any kind of time to see out his McLaren contract, which I think speaks to how much he's respected at McLaren um, and the fact that they had this ready-made kind of replacement there. So it seemed that Stella had already been lined up by Zach Brown. He knew the writing was kind of on the wall that Sider was kind of looking to move. It sounds like those discussions had started, you know, a few months away from the end of the season. So Brown had this idea for, okay, well, we'll promote Stella in 26. And then, as you mentioned, the Vasseur move kind of accelerated things a bit. Um, so that part of it was surprising. But I, I think that... I think I'm I'm actually pretty impressed. You know, Alpha have, you know, obviously they had a great season. You know, they they moved right up the, the constructor championship last season, but some really exciting things on the horizon for them. And Seidel, I think, is one of the most rated guys in the paddock. So, pretty good move uh, all round. We'll see how it works. McLaren, 
you know, we're talking about culture and we're talking about, you know, Fred, is Fred the right man for Ferrari? Fred mm-hmm. is kind of a known quantity. He was led a lot of teams before. This is Stella's, you know, it's a step up into the unknown for him. So we still don't know whether McLaren are going to keep it just as him. Is he going to do the same role that Seidel did? I think that'd be unlikely. Or are they going to spread that role a bit more across a few more people, a bit like how Alpine operated for a few seasons, um, which didn't go so well. So whether McLaren think that that's a good way to operate a team, we'll see. Um, but quite a brave step from Brown, I think, because, um, yes, you know, Stella is clearly very competent at the jobs he has done, but to step into the unknown. And I think it does show you how how limited the options are for when you do actually sack a team boss you don't really have that many options. It's not like you have this carousel of drivers, uh, sorry, of, of team bosses who have got loads of experience because there are so few of them. So it shows you how important it is for for teams to kind of be making those long-term decisions. And we can talk about Williams in a second, but that's a team that hasn't done that by the sounds of it and have quite a good story for that. But I can let Lawrence and, and Tony jump in uh, for a second. If, if they want to, we can just go straight well, to Williams. Well, yeah. on. Let's go straight to Williams because you just yeah. clearly cut, yeah. uh, painted a picture that there's not the slew of stables of people waiting to jump into the role. So what yeah. are Williams' options at this point? Well, so from what I understand from speaking to people at the team, when when they said that um, uh, Capito was leaving the team, you assumed it was going to be followed up with, you know, we've got somebody to fill the, the gap. That's what Ferrari did. It's what Alpha did. It's what McLaren did. Williams still haven't got anyone. And from what I understand, the day after uh, Capito had left, Williams had no idea who they're going to hire. They had a list of about 15 names. It's hard to think who those 15 names could be. There's a lot of people internally, I think, on that list as well. Um, but it just shows you, and Williams are, you know, we're, we're a month away from the covers coming off their car and they don't know who's leading the team. You know, it's an interesting time for Williams. You know, they've struggled a lot in the past few seasons. So I think it's a really good comparison between how they've gone about it. It kind of shows you how the team is maybe running behind the scenes or at least how things are there versus, you know, a Ferrari, a McLaren, an Alpha. Say what you want about their performances on track, but they made decisions and they had a, a clear plan of how to follow those things up. So Williams in a bit of a a bit of a mess, I think. Um, and it does seem like they kind of, they either got rid of, well, it seems like they did get rid of um uh, Capito and and their technical director FX. I never know how to say his surname, um, but he's Le called Maison. FX. Le Maison, that's it. I, I always Maison. butcher his name. I read it and I'm like, I'm going to get that wrong. And if um, you want the full name, it's François Xavier de Maison. But let's see. That's beautiful. that's beautiful. I could never. I would have. I would have absolutely disgraced. You're myself welcome. That's my that. one contribution to the podcast. Just it's uh, Tony's <laughs> no, French. What, <laughs> one of one of many. Um, so and again, so Williams going into the season with two key positions not filled. Um, so you know, it, it really bizarre situation there for them to to have done that like that. Um, so yeah, a bit concerning because I'm you know I, there's a lot of teams that we all have soft spots for, but Williams definitely is one of them. You know they they're like they were the team in the '90s, um, and at the moment you just I mean if there was a team that was going to drop off the, the the grid to let Andretti in, let's say, I'm not saying it's going to be Williams, but like right now if you were to guess, you'd say well Williams looks like one of the weaker ones there. So um, that's a bit of a shame. Tony, but is t- there any path forward where, where I just you- muted you, Nate? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw Tony. Tony recoiled at that suggestion. I did a little bit inside as well. I'm not saying but I'm, I'm it, not trying to wish that into being, but you know, it's a realistic possibility, which is what's so frightening. So, Tony, is there any path forward where we see a resurgence from Williams, or are we too far gone at this point? 
Oh, I think uh, I'm. I I think there's a path of resurgence. I just think it will probably look very different than the historical Williams that Nate, to your point, that we hold so dearly because it's just so embedded in the sport. You can't really think Formula One without thinking, obviously, Ferrari, but obviously Williams, um, and the, and the legacy there. But I think the mo- the key thing for me is that continuity. Even when we're talking about the border team principles which is interesting with McLaren of actually yes we are odd maybe choice but you have that continuity of someone in a leadership role that's continuing it is kind of wackadoo for lack of a better word that we're so close to the start of the season and this a there's no one that's been announced but b everyone's whacking their head and you know when you hear people say oh my god Susie Wolf and you're like she's been very adamant that that's not a thing that she wants but the fact that we're digging and trying to find potential people is 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 interesting I had a vision the other day of what if they go and pan what if they go and pick someone that has nothing to do with motorsports that's an American in maybe the tech space and they're like this person knows how to lead teams they're not technically savvy but it doesn't matter they know how to lead a team and pivot a team I'm not saying that that's going to happen but I had a, a vision of look this is a team that's backed by Donington Capital and they might be thinking outside the box here and looking at the tech landscape which is where my head always lies Maybe I think that would be something very different. I, be I mean, it's high high risk kind of um, punt, isn't it? Because it doesn't happen yes. very often. But but I think you know, if you look at where Williams are now, really the only yeah. way is up. And what do you uh, have to lose? Yeah, and also, it, it, I think the key thing for them in the immediacy is to get a good technical director in place who um, can start to. Uh, yeah, bring the direction to, to to where they're going because it must be a very tricky situation at the moment because. Um, uh, Francois Xavier de Maison um, left, you know, a plan, I'm sure. <laughs> it wasn't too bad, yeah. is it? Um, I'm okay. sure left a plan in place and, uh, you know, had was a big part of the yeah. early designs for this year's car. But then where do things go? Where do resources go? And uh, Doralton at the very top, I'm sure, will take care of a lot of the basic, you know, administration, just making sure that the company runs. But they're not, you know, they're, they're not technical directors. They're not really, um, you know, F1 engineers and and you need that but to have somebody above that who isn't there I mean I guess Mm -hmm. the famous example although this is probably not what you were uh, aiming for but Flavio Briatore a man who came in from the fashion industry had really no background in uh, Formula One had a lot of background in some rather dodgy dealings but came in and was a very inspirational leader and very successful leader Uh, and um, you know I mean ultimately uh, he kind of led it in the wrong direction right at the very end in 2008 with Crashgate and all that. But if you look at um, 94, 95 Benetton, you know, that was a very, yeah. very serious racing team led by someone who, you know, only just a few years earlier had been uh, a man involved in the fashion industry. So I think there's definitely a space for that within Formula One. And there's an interesting parallel there, as you were saying that, and obviously I, not obviously, I worked a lot and very closely with the Aston Martin team last year going in and trying to create educational content and tapping into new audiences. And all the people that I was speaking to and the people who were trying to think outside of the box of building an audience all came from the fashion world. They all came from outside of motorsports. And for me, that was such a breath of fresh air. They were trying to look at the sport and building that audience in a completely different way than the way it's always been done or the way we do it in most sports. And I would argue that it helped because I have my DMs are flooded with people like saying I was just an F1 fan, didn't have a team. But the fact that they've done and gone out of their way and worked with content creators and worked with Gen Z has made me become a fan of the sport. And whether you like it or don't, that's a whole conversation for another day. But I like what you're saying there, Lauren. So actually, I do think there's a spillover effect here that's really interesting when you take people completely outside of a different space. They come in with a whole different view and they don't 
don't come in with that, oh, we tried that before, it didn't work, or that's never worked here in this space. You can come with sort of a blank canvas, which could be really exciting. I also never thought that Jos Capito and, and Francois Xavier were a good fit. I, do, I always felt like they, they just didn't fit with the William brand, but that's just very personal. Well, it does seem, it seems that what happened there was Capito brought in a lot of his old friends from you know, previous jobs. And I think that grated at Williams internally, you know, I have a couple of people I know at Williams and it just seemed like, you know, I'm not sure. I think I don't want to be too harsh, but like one person suggested Capito was a bit like, had had a bit of a Michael Scott kind of trait about him from the office, you know, clearly well-meaning and actually was fairly competent at the job, but was actually quite good at uh, doing the opposite of motivating the team of kind of putting his foot in his mouth a bit and you know when you're in a it, it's fine if you're winning races and stuff like that but when you're at the at the back end of the field like that that's obviously not what you want to have so, so somebody coming in from that background that you mentioned might actually be kind of the complete opposite of that it's like well this person is actually coming in from a completely different mindset so you know what have we got to lose as as, as you guys were saying I mean, let's face it, tech has a, a long line of very strange CEOs as well. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the headline quite a bit for some weird, weird stuff. But just how you make it in tech. Yeah, leadership is hard. Again, yeah. like it's just to, to Lawrence's point, I wouldn't want the job. Yeah, and it, it reminded me of just where you're talking about it, like uh, Toto Wolf, who obviously does have experience in, in motorsport and, you know, had to go at racing himself, but most of his experiences in investing you know that's that's where he that's it, yeah. and and really it's interesting when you see him uh operate when you see him talk to people and he always is asking questions to people always asking questions to people because he he just believes every single person he meets he can learn a little bit from learn a little bit from even if he's learning how not to do something you just get that feeling that there's always it's always openness rather than closing things off um and uh i think that's Sometimes with Informal One, there, there is too much kind of, you know, closing off ideas. We do it as we always did because we're a racing team. But the history of F- F1 itself suggests that, you know, that doesn't work. That's why we have these big changes in in who's successful and who's not. Uh, and uh, the engineering is obviously very important, but the wider kind of planning and often the, the leadership uh, can can be a little bit more abstract and a little bit yeah wider thinking and ranging. Speaking of changes, and I know we could probably do a whole episode or show on this topic, but quickly, I wanted to get each of your thoughts on uh, the FIA's recent ban of all political, religious, and personal statements by drivers. Uh, They really want to keep the sport neutral, so it looks like Seb got out at the right time because, as Mm. we know, he was a champion of voicing his concerns and opinions on things that were political or uncomfortable to talk about. What do you make of the FIA trying to involve themselves and and tell these drivers and teams what they can and can't do? It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's unclear exactly what prompted that kind of clarification or that to come out. Um, Seems like maybe it was in response to the World Cup. Obviously, the World Cup, there was a big thing about uh, England play, English players and a few other countries wanting to wear the the One Love armband. Um, But obviously protests and political statements have become more and more common in Formula One. So um, it's it's a bizarre one. You know, I think it's it's important to to note that drivers can still make that make those statements. It's just now they have to kind of almost, it, it sounds like, you know, written permission from the FAA first, which I'm not sure whether that's just they ask permission. It's kind of, it's kind of granted. It's just like the FAA are like, well, look, we just want to know what you guys are doing. Or is it a way for the FAA to actually say, well, no, look, <clears throat> a bit like, in the world cup in Qatar, like 
we actually think that this protest, you know, this armband you want to wear would be counterproductive to our hosts. We'd rather you didn't wear it. And if you do wear it, there can be some sporting penalties down the line. So I think that needs to kind of play out a little bit more. But um, it's a tricky one because I think that there can be some really powerful statements that drivers can make. I mean, I think Seb and Lewis have been fantastic on this, especially um, in certain places, um, you know, shining a light on different issues. But then you get to the point of you get a lot of fans who say, well, actually, I just want to watch, you know, the sporting event I've, I've tuned into. And I don't know, it's 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 a tricky one. I think that it's a shame to curtail somebody's freedom to do that before a race. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of money involved in Formula One. And suddenly you get to this point where you're like, well, you know, fans are happy watching a Saudi Arabian Grand Prix, but then they're not happy if that if that host says, well, actually, we don't want this protest happening there. The teams are happy to race there, but so it's, it's tricky, you know, and, and I'm not condoning the things that go on in those countries, but I, I can see where the FIA has got itself into a bind here. And, you know, we, I'm sure we'd all love for everybody to be making a you know different protest every weekend. Um, I think, yeah, the, I'm trying to think, I'm trying to find a way to, so I spoke to Zach Brown before Christmas. We published the article just after Christmas and, his his statement, his take on it was similar to mine. It was kind of um he can understand where that's come from. I think he got a bit of heat for that for that statement. Um but I don't know, we'll see how it plays out. I think that it's another example of the FAA maybe trying to over police things happening away from the track. We saw that with piercings, we saw that with you know, all that nonsense last year. So I want to see how it plays out, but it's 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 it, it kind of fills you with a, a bit of dread that that can be something they can have the power to do suddenly say actually lewis you can't you know you can't wear the rainbow helmet that you want to wear in saudi you think well is that really something the faa should be stopping a driver from doing and if if that is if that is the stance they're taking on it i hope lewis calls their bluff on it and says are you you know disqualify me if you have to you know if that's if that is what the faa is doing i hope that's the response um but the issue is as well i think that sadly lewis is one of a minority of drivers that does that actually so there's enough drivers that kind of would I think would happily just not pro would just say yeah, that's fine I you know I don't really care about that enough that maybe maybe this is something that passes without too much much notice so we'll see interesting that we're racing the first place you know we're going to Bahrain straight away so one thing I would say on this is did it need to change what was it last year that mm. meant they needed to bring in some regulation around this and as far as I could tell I, I don't think there was anything I think the the protests that were made on uh the grid uh, in previous years on the podium as well were, were were fine i don't think they damaged the sport i don't think it was um you know and it is part of going racing in some of these countries that have appalling human rights records is that 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 has to be flagged up you know i think it's it's irresponsible to go there and not flag it up and in fact f1 has said many times that by going to saudi arabia it hopes to change some of uh mm the the issues there and well you're not going to change it if you don't talk about it so i don't understand what triggered this uh clampdown because that's what it is i mean you know th there was always kind of things in place to say that you can't bring the sport into disrepute and so on but yeah this this kind of additional um kind of underlining of of, of a rule and kind of creating a, a much harsher rule uh seems strange to me because I I didn't see there being a problem previously. And then so why would you change it if there if there wasn't? So somebody at the FIA clearly felt that uh what happened in in previous years um what wasn't acceptable, but I completely disagree with that. I look at it it's in direct response to what you were just saying there, Lawrence, it's power and influence. When you look at the 
the actual additions um, in the regulation, they're as opaque and as vague as you possibly can be, which means that A, it's going to be a shit show when it comes to how these decisions and how these punishments are put out in 2023. Yay, we get to look that, we have that to look forward to. And being sassy here, because it's really, it was one of the things that irked me the most, I think. Um, but secondly, it just puts an enormous amount of power in who is going to take that decision. And it also becomes incredibly subjective, which means that who gets penalized, how they get penalized becomes extremely subjective, which again, when you look at it, it's power. But the most asinine thing about all of this is you can't separate politics and sports. You go all the way back to ancient Rome and ancient Greece. Those sporting events were happening in the same places where people would ask their politicians to do more or do less for them. Like it is like the two of them are just part of the flip sides of the same coin. Um, so there's something there for me that's just absolutely fascinating. I also, the thing for me that is extremely ironic is when you look at the later statements of Mohammed bin Salim regarding, uh, obviously president of the FIA, regarding Cadillac and Andretti, all of that is coming from his personal account. So, oh, I'm sorry, you have personal opinions about something? <laughs> you have an FIA account, use the FIA account, that's the governing body. Isn't he doing the exact opposite of what he is asking his drivers on the grids who are human first? And then for me, it just ends up that when are we going to start realizing that these athletes own products? When are we going to start realizing that these are humans first and they're not products for us, for our entertainment? I don't know. There's so many layers to that and there's so many parallels um, to pull on that I could go down a one hour rant on that, which I won't. Maybe we will we will sidebar that for a whole nother episode. We could do that. Sounded like it was going somewhere really good. So <laughs> we'll definitely deep dive into that yeah. later in the year. And you're, you're coming back on the podcast. We're, we're going to talk about this. Yeah. As soon as it kicks off, like you say, we will be talking about this at some that's stage. It. It's um, going to be top of news. Why do we want this top of news? If truly, that's my point. If truly you want to talk about sports and you want to focus on the racing, let's yeah. do that. Yeah. But this <clears> is <throat> the thing about the about the power grab. Sorry to carry on on this, but this thing about the power grab is that, yeah, it, it gives them the power to do it, but then they've actually got to sit with that and they've got to make what's going to become an incredibly controversial uh, decision that, like you say, may, um, you know, steal headlines from a perfectly good motor race. So, yeah, I, I think they've got to be careful with that. Yes, it's about power, but they've got to know what they're going to do with that power. And um, that's, uh, yeah, that's going to be interesting. It's a very good way. To... There's a shift. Oh, sorry. That's all right. You go. I was just going to say, it's a, I feel like there's an interesting shift that's happened over the years of a power away from Formula One FIA towards the drivers and the drivers today have more power, I believe, than they've ever had before. And so for me, that's why I say it's like power and influence is the FIA and F1 going, we still need to be relevant. And that's a whole other conversation for another day. But the role of the FIA when it was first introduced is fundamentally different today. And you look at the FIA and you can ask the questions of what does this governing body do? Do we still need it? What are the things that it brings to the table? And if I was the FIA, if I was rebranding myself, that's what I would be looking at is like, what? do i bring to the table am i still needed an invaluable part of this like tree, trio if you add the the promoters is like a four-person club um or four buckets of club here yeah, yeah I, I completely agree with that and that has been a, a a key kind of policy almost throughout everything that mohammed ben Salem's done it's it's to to show that the fia is is, is still relevant and, and is still important and i think part of that comes from the fact that f1 Sometimes wonders whether they do need the FIA as part of, part of it. But again, that that is an entirely new, different podcast that we should probably save for another day. It just reminds me of when um, LeBron James was essentially told, shut up and dribble. And you didn't see the league, the NBA, and you didn't see Adam Silver say, 
Oh, she's right. You should shut up and dribble and just continue to entertain us with your unbelievable ability as a basketball player. The NBA actually got behind its players and said they're more than basketball players. You know, Love they that. have feelings, they have beliefs, they have values outside of what they do for a living. So, and in F1 as well, I mean, these are guys that, as we've seen before, can get very seriously hurt, can even, you oh, know, yeah. they risk their lives racing as well. So, I think that is a really good point. And, um, I think it's one. The funny thing is as well, isn't it, is that as soon as this becomes an issue, I feel like that almost becomes more of a story, doesn't it? If you That's say it. to Lewis Hamilton, you can't wear this, it's it's suddenly way like if if going back to the World Cup, if England had just worn those had worn those armbands for that first game and maybe it would have it would have still been a story, but you would have seen it and you said that's great you know great statement they've made but it became this three four five day story it then leaked over to the next few days obviously it had ramifications with other teams not doing it as well so it suddenly became this massive issue and it almost i'm not saying it overshadowed the start of the world cup but it was almost as big a story as what was happening on 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 uh, on the pitch in those games so you you run that risk as well that suddenly inadvertently you create something that's even worse than what you quote unquote maybe feared was going to happen if if you hadn't had those rules yeah. in place. Shock horror. Humans haven't have an opinion when you tell them that they can't be humans and have basic rights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Who would have thought? <laughs> now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up hypnotic and cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup blue and ready for the play. And boom. Añejo tequila came in with a smooth assist to hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good! The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic Liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Did you guys see this? Caesars, in preparation for the Las Vegas Grand Prix, is selling a $5 million package. It includes 12 guests, five nights at the Nobu Sky Villa, which is apparently 10,000 square feet, so you've got plenty of room to spread out, private dinner at Nobu with the chef, paddock club tickets, access to a Rolls Royce and 24-7 butler service. The villa, just in case you were curious, because I know you were, usually costs $35,000 a night. But you and 12 friends or you and 11 friends or family members can get it all for the little measly price of $5 million. We start Um, GoFundMe now. We might, yeah. we might just, just about get close to that. I don't know. Um, we can like pull off a heist. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it does have a ten-year contract, doesn't it? So we can start saving for the final Vegas race of that contract. Um, that's insane money, isn't it? That's uh, it's such a game-changing race, Vegas. It just is going to blow everything else out of the water in terms of what we know about races, what we've seen before. It's it's nuts. But and that markup, thirty-five k a night to a million a night. 
I mean, that is yeah. significant. Yeah. And there you go. You know, that, I guess that is the what F1 is bringing to Vegas. So for a long time, um, I remember Vegas was on the cards as a potential F1 race. And everyone was like, oh, well, why would Vegas do it? Why would Vegas be interested? You know, they'll shut down uh, the city, won't be able to operate as it normally does and all this kind of stuff. It's like, well, there's your answer. You know, one of the biggest casinos, uh, hotels there can have that kind of markup on, um, on their suite and apparently sell it well we'll have to wait and see but i should imagine it won't be empty on race day did did you feel though like i felt like there was a lavishness to miami in 2022 and the newness there and it was more of a are you going for the racing are you going to be seen kind of situation i feel like this is that times a thousand times five million if you (laughs) want to throw that like it's on steroids do you think that the lavishness can sometimes overshadow Tony the racing and what we're actually there for. Um, yes and no. I think there's always, you know, I don't live in a world where I'm going to look at that and go, hmm, I wonder if I can. Also, I don't have 12 friends I would want to spend four nights with. So that's what I was just looking. That's yeah. the only thing I could think. Forget the price tag. I was like, I don't have 12 friends I want to spend three nights. No, just no. Um, I've always looked at it from a perspective of, there's always going to be an audience for something as insane as this. And as long as it doesn't take away from normal people, i.e. everyone that's the 0.1% who can look at that and afford that, um, as long as it doesn't take away from people who are able to still have a good race weekend. And I think that's where the question lies for me. But where that, what that prompted me is, oh, we're going to come into an interesting place where tickets are rash. We've got very limited resources when it comes to Formula One tickets. And it's going to be interesting all the different tactics that we have of price rationing. I do you put like really insane prices and only the people who can afford it get the tickets. Do you start doing some kind of weird lotteries where you can actually get a ticket? And, you know, no matter how big of a fan or small of a fan, you could potentially just win a ticket. Or do you force people to stand in queues like they did with Taylor Swift? That's where my mind goes with these things because so many people I've spoken to have said, forget if I could even afford a Vegas ticket I can just get my hands on one they would disappear because there's what only 80,000 seats so the 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 price rationing of tickets or how do you get your hands on tickets moving forward I think it's going to be an interesting one um to look at well that's where my head goes from an economic perspective yeah and I I wonder how many of those guests who get that package will actually watch the race you know I wonder if 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 you're going if you're going to that you're clearly you know you, you clearly have a bit of money you know you might be an influencer or something like that but I think that that ultimately is kind of what Vegas is probably going to be going for, isn't it? Is that kind of they want there's going to be the race event. There's going to be fans that are kind of going to be judging as soon as those lights go off. You know, that race is going to be what everybody's watching. That's what the TV cameras will be watching. Mm-hmm. It's what we'll all be watching. It's what we'll be reporting on. But then there'll be this other kind of bit of Vegas going on on social media, on TikTok, on Twitter, where all these people who are experiencing, maybe even experiencing Vegas for the first time, but maybe experiencing F1 for the first time. That's certainly how it was in Miami. There were so many new people who were just saying, this is insane. I've never been to anything like this before. And you reach a new audience like that. So I think Tony's right. I think that if it's done the right way, it could, I mean, it seems you used that great phrase earlier. It's it's not win-win, but it's definitely a no-loss. It's a no-lose scenario, I think. Yeah. And it seems you don't know quite how it's going to play out. I mean, but... it creates headlines. We're talking yeah. about it. And We're I can't see <laughs> that that kind of thing is not going to, you know, some of us might look at it and think that's insane money, but it's not going to turn somebody off Formula One just no. because that ticket exists, is it? You and know, there's you someone out there at... who can afford it. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's um, it's a different way of doing things. And I mean, it's it's crazy as well, because these these things tend to improve as, as races continue. So you wonder, where is Vegas? 
like next year is this a six million dollar package then does it like you know so that part of it is crazy uh because you would assume demand is going to go up you know it's going to become more of a lucrative thing to go to so i mean who knows in 10 years time that could be a lot more expensive and the gofundme that we set up for this one will be completely Mate's already because, started it <laughs> yeah I, yeah i have i've sent it to my 12 friends to, to tony but i don't want you them to come 12 either. friends congrats <laughs> you know what it reminds me of is like when you have on the menu just like gold coated chicken wins and you're like who in their right mind wants gold coated chicken wins like why <laughs> why does anyone or there's the ten thousand dollar burger on a menu like it reminds me of that stuff it's there to create hype create headlines and there's always one person out there and i can guarantee we're going to get a video of some influencer to nate's point who says i bought that five million dollar package and here it is and that's the video that everyone is going to want to watch i mean i wouldn't be surprised someone like mr beast decides you know what i spend three million on youtube videos regardless let me pour five million into this and let's as long as it's not salt bay I don't as long care. as it well he's banned he, isn't he, he <laughs> yeah he, well, he tried to ruin the world cup fi- yes. he tried to ruin the world cup final will not let him near formula one we must stop him from doing the same thing it can be anyone else not but i like that i'm gonna we'll pitch that to mr beast mr beast go and buy it um so we can all experience it for your lens on youtube and you'll make 10 times that money back in adsense um lawrence in the event that you were never going to work that event which i know is slim to no chance of the 11 people you would invite, would you extend the invitation to Nate? That's a good question. That's yeah, a good question. Um, gosh, how do I get out of this? No, that's, that's, already, that's, already, that's already a no, Katie. He took way too long I know. to answer that. The pause that. in and of he itself. Was, he, that's a very British. If you take too long, you're trying no, to work uh, out the most polite uh, way of saying no. Um, of course I would. I mean, in my life from that, I don't know if, if I had that much money, I guess I wouldn't have to work anymore. So it wouldn't be a problem. I wouldn't have to see him in the office the next week. But, you know, um, <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, yeah. But you could I, just I thinking, cut me out of your life, mate. That would be, you'd be able to do I, that. I was thinking, is, is this that new? Because in Monaco, um, no. you know, there's all these yachts in the harbor. And mm-hmm. uh, a couple of years ago, I did a, a piece looking, kind of did some research on the yachts. And I was just had it in my mind. I thought I must have been about five million. But for a week on the biggest yacht in the Monaco Harbour a couple of years ago is 1.7 million uh, euros. So actually, it, it does top that. And I, I was wondering, what, what's better value, this Las Vegas suite or a yacht in the Monaco Harbour on race weekend? Tough choice. I'll probably I go would... for the yacht in Monaco, but... You don't get a butler. You don't get a butler in uh, the yacht in Monaco. Yeah. Oh, oh, but you do. Oh, but you oh, get you so do? much more. Oh. That, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you, you have a whole, you have your whole staff, you have a whole crew of people. Uh, Lawrence has clearly already lot. looked into this in pretty <laughs> yeah, <don't know. laughs> amount of depth. Like, what do I get? What's my bang for my buck here? <laughs> um, and there was an ice room on it. There was all sorts of good stuff on it. It was, it was pretty special. But, um, but yeah, crazy that because uh, I, I thought it was going to be a similar price, and in my head, the the Monaco one was. But maybe Monaco is turning into a bargain. Imagine that. <laughs> Could you imagine? Crazy. Tony, we've we've loved having you on. I want to touch base on this because I think it's so fascinating. You're heading to Mexico, as we alluded to, on Thursday, which is extremely exciting to be covering, you know, Formula E that kicks off on January 14th. What excites you about this endeavor? What are you anticipating and expecting? Oh, I love that question. Um, I was saying to, to Lawrence that I feel like I'm having a bit of a 
Dunning-Kruger effect where you think you understand the sport and then you start peeling the layers and you start discovering you go oh no I know absolutely nothing about the sport and I love that and I've been watching Formula One since I was a kid my dad used to drive me to Spa-Francorchamps because we used to live close to there and I, I'm just discovering formally and I love and even if I knew Formula One for all of those years it's only when I started making content on a daily basis that I realized every time I think I have an answer to something every time I think I understand something there's a whole new layer to it of complexities or changes and I'm I'm having that moment that deep dive with Formula E and that I just thought I'd understood it and I, my background is in tech so I thought this is just like a match made in heaven so I was looking at this going great if you if you enjoy tech if you if you like mission driven companies or series or projects and I'm basically defining Gen Z right now um, <laughs> but the more I dug into it I'm just like new tire providers and I realized okay so no longer Michelin tires it's Hankook tires and then I realized oh the grooves are going to be different I then realized wait what they have one tire whether it's wet sunshine or dry like it's insane to me I'm just trying to I was thinking about what does it look like if Formula One drivers were told you have one compound tires and off you go it'd be absolute chaos so every time I'm just peeling the layers right now that's getting me excited the other thing that I discovered that I got excited by is they've been very clever in my opinion, that when I look at the calendar, they are racing places where other series, <clears throat> F1, should really be racing. India, South Africa, where people have been asking to go to those, you know, to those parts of the world. So I think it's really smart. And I, you know, I'm excited to see the growth in the Indian market of Formula E and just a new series. There's just so much. Um, I don't think there were that many crossovers with Formula One. The more I look into it, I was like, there's a couple of commonalities, four wheels, two drivers per team, 10, 10 or so teams on the grid is actually 11. Um, but I think it's wrong to compare. I think it's completely different, which then obviously people start, you know, talking about, well, does this replace Formula One down the line, which I think is just a really interesting conversation to get into. I would say if you're a diehard petrol head, you'll probably never enjoy Formula E. But if you're into the strategy, the technology, and what I've discovered, which I hadn't realized, is the amount of, I was looking at my, I've got an electric car, and I was looking at how long it takes and the watts that it needs to charge the car. And then I looked at, they're bringing in apparently mandatory pit stops again. And my mind just went to, God, what does it look like to charge a Formula E car and have a pit stop? Like, what, are they sitting there for a minute, 10 seconds, 30 seconds? So there's just, I don't know, I, I geek out over the strategy and the technology. And I think if you're even the slightest interested in that, um, you can get over the sound that some people might have issues with. You mentioned India, South Africa, obviously Mexico City is the start. Do you yeah. have a couple of dates or places circled that you can't wait to not only visit, but cover a race there? Yes. Um, because the thing with Formula E is that it's in city centers. I'm so used to going, you know, you drive out, out to Silverstone, you drive out to spa Francorchamps. You, you drive out in Kota in the middle of nowhere. Here, it's like it's happening in a city center. Very It's like Monaco times 16, which is kind of crazy. And they obviously race in Monaco. Um, I'm ex I want to do, I'd love to do Rome. I think I'd love to do London. Mexico, I'm excited because it's close by, but I've never been. And Monaco is interesting because it's happening the same weekend of Miami. So similar to Lawrence's, would I do the VIP package at Vegas or the VIP package at Monaco? I had a thing of, do I want to see close wheel-to-wheel on-track combat with Formula E cars in Monaco, or would I rather see an F1 race in Miami? And that was a that's a hard one that I'm trying to toy with. I know very, very fortunate of me to even be looking at those two options. Um, but I'm not torn, so I'm actually going to throw it out to all of you if you had the choice between a Formula E race in Monaco or a, help, help me decide, basically, or Miami with Formula One, what would you go for? Hollywood I was that taken by Miami actually uh on my, I, I like Miami as a place but the race itself 
Agreed. I wasn't that sure on. Whereas if I were to go to a Formula E race, well, I mean, Mexico is actually would be high on the list. Mexico is always good. Are they still racing in Seoul? They raced in Seoul at the end of last year, didn't they? In, in, in yeah, South but I don't think it's, I don't often. think they're doing Seoul again this year. Uh, okay. And you that can't pick be, Lawrence. It has to be. be, be, I has to be I, yeah. <laughs> but I've, I've been to Monaco many a time, so I probably uh, would get back to back to my. So I feel like we I, don't have, I'm, I always say just boot Monaco off the F1 calendar, but I always say, but I'd like to see it once in my life, but also there's no real racing happening that's my view of it looking at it from my couch but yeah that that that, that is often the case but there's always a little bit of drama somewhere i would ask nate and lawrence though having covered f1 for as long as the two of you have what it is about formula e that would entice you as a fan to turn it on and watch for those listening who may be unfamiliar with formula e and would be interested in getting into it i think um if you're if you're bored of seeing uh, single teams dominate all the time yes. then turn on Formula E because you'll get um, more variation in, in who's winning and especially this year uh, I was reading a bit about the test and it seems pretty chaotic at the moment uh, lots of teams trying to get their head around new technology and uh, there could be a, a lot of drama and I've seemingly every time I watch a Formula E race there's some weird new drama that they hadn't thought of like <laughs> there was the time when um they hadn't really considered that having a safety car out over a certain amount of time would mean that a lot of cars ran out of battery right at the very end and so it was really just crawling to the line to see who could make it um so there's always uh yeah there's always something that goes on and it's it's just a different style of racing it's it's it seems more consumable I think straight off 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 the bat you know it's um uh it's it's kind of yeah you, you you see you see a lot of what's what's going on and you know they're very much wheel to wheel whereas an f1 race you sometimes have to sit there and you have to sit through 10 laps knowing that tire strategies are going to cross over at the end of the race but um yeah it's a little bit kind of uh faster in that respect and i think the key thing um between the two although i've not actually been to a formula e race uh but the thing that appeals is that it is in a city center and so uh you could go and watch a formula e race and um yeah stay in a hotel and see the city and do all the kind of things you do on a normal kind of breakaway and then yeah and 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 then you get to see some motor racing but um but my my heart and my head both say that that formula one is a is a, is a far superior category but but i'm quite old-fashioned <laughs> like that i think as well that i went to the battersea park the first race they did there and i loved i did love that that lawrence mentioned the, the city center i think one thing that is important as well that the more new fans we get in Formula One, it's always a good reminder when you look at the, I was just on my computer here, just pulling up the entry list, you know, the drivers that are involved in it. It's always a good reminder, the same as IndyCar, that there are so many talented drivers who aren't in Formula One uh, at the moment. You know, you can easily start thinking that those 20 drivers in Formula One are the 20 best drivers in the world. I think the five five or six best drivers in the world are definitely in Formula One. Um, but there's a lot of drivers elsewhere who, you know, you, you look at and you're like, well, this guy probably, with given the chance, might have might have made it, you know, you've got guys like Van Dorn, Vern, guys that if things maybe had gone differently, they might have, you know, had longer careers in Formula One. Obviously, uh, Nick DeFries is coming in this year to Formula One and, you know, he won the championship. So I think that's quite fun as well. And there's some really great characters. I mean, Dan Tickton, love him or hate him, is a fantastic character to follow. Um, he's probably actually the kind of character that F1 would absolutely love to have in just for the Netflix cameras. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of those guys there as well. So and I think they've been trying to lean a bit more into that, haven't they, Tony, with trying to yeah. get get some of the characters a bit more front and center rather than so i think one of the problems maybe formula e had early on 
and it, it was a great message they were trying to push, but I think they went over the top with it. And a lot of people just don't, you know, a lot of it just didn't really resonate with people, but human stories do. So I think now they're trying to get that mm-hmm. more front and center. It's where my head has been like, well, you know, obviously Drive to Survive has done a lot for Formula One, but I also think it's a very simplistic point of view of just like content creators who've been creating content, people like yourselves as well, who've been creating content on a daily basis, pulling out stories and having those opinions and those discussions. That's really what has driven interest like it has done in every other sport. And so I keep thinking about what is it going to take and what does Formula E need for that, you know, for those characters and those human stories to come and bubble up at the surface. But I love what you were saying about there's potentially the five best drivers in Formula One, but let's look at Indy, let's look at Formula E, there's some incredible drivers there too, which I think is what I'm mostly excited by, getting out of my comfort zone of Formula One and discovering other incredible drivers on the grid and their personalities. I think I can uh, speak for the guys at this point um, in knowing them, that it's been a pleasure having you with us this afternoon slash evening. I hope you'll accept an invitation down the road moving forward. Where can we follow your coverage for those listening? And watch ah, um first of all thank you for having me it's been an absolute blast and thank you for welcoming me so so kindly um uh you can follow me on tiktok at f1 tony which i'm sure one day i'll get told i'll get told off by um by f1 mm-hmm. that i can't use f1 in my name but that day i'll cross that bridge when it gets there but it's f1 tony on tiktok good problem, and to have. good problem to have exactly i'll keep that letter if i ever get it i'll frame it um and then everywhere else, it's Tony Cowan Brown, whether that's Twitter, Instagram, um, or Twitch. I stream two times a week on Twitch, which is fun, where we just, you know, go through the news of the day. And it's generally intersection of motorsports and politics or motorsports and tech. Awesome. Well, we appreciate the time. Safe Thank travels you. to Mexico City. I hope you're able to get out of the drowning California city that you are currently in. Um, we that's will fast. wait for your coverage. Have so much fun. I will see you two. And hear from you next week because we are back, baby, and we cannot wait as we quickly approach the 2023 F1 season. Remember, if you're watching on YouTube, like the video, leave us a comment, and subscribe to ESPN for more F1 content. If you're listening, hit us with a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers. Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today.